0: Welcome to The Breakfast Leadership Show, where we interview global thought leaders on business, leadership, and life. Here's your host, keynote speaker, best-selling author, and chief burnout officer of The Breakfast Leadership Network, Michael Levitt. Welcome back. I've got Chris Dillon on the line. Chris, how are you? I am fantastic, Michael. Thank you for asking. Oh, I'm happy to have you on the show today. You've got an amazing background. We've done a lot of work with some well-known organizations, but why don't you share a little bit about you and, and some of the work you've done? Uh,
1: sure. Um, so I'm, I consider myself a bit of an entrepreneur. I'm a, I'm a provoker of thoughts and a builder of brands. I'm a big advocate Ah, brand advocacy. Um, I believe that most businesses have spent way too much time, time and energy and money. Uh, trying to be famous and not nearly enough time and energy trying to be adored and loved and craved and and found irresistible. Um, I, about five years ago, started a, uh, spending a disproportionate amount of my time on internal engagement. First 20 years of my career was much more about getting audiences externally uh, to kind of um, fall in love with your brand. And, and um, there's just been a massive shift in, in how brands are built from sort of the inside out. And um, I wouldn't even say a shift, I just a massive recognition that uh, when you start to look at the difference between great brands and mediocre brands, one of the glaring differences is their prioritization uh, on their culture and not just via lip service, but through real leadership and real investment. Um, And so, you know, I have an advisory firm, we have an event, we have a talent platform, I have our fingers in a few different things, but it's all around the idea of helping uh, professionals build better careers and companies build better uh, engagement with key audiences.
0: And that's critical because with social media and access to information, unlike we've ever had before in life, It's easy to be found, but it's also really difficult because just there's so much out there. So focusing on the brand, I love how you say from the inside out, is, is really crucial because when you do engage with your customers, whomever they may be, uh, it's more genuine from my observation. It's because if you've done the work internally and you know who you are and you, you know, your why, you know, your what, and you know what the organization organization is about and what they want to do. I think that goes a long way in, you know, basically creating that old school, no like, and trust factor. It's like, okay, I feel that this is an organization that relates to me as a consumer or a customer. And I want to be able to support them by buying their products or services.
1: Yeah. And I, you know, I don't even know, I take issue with two things that you said. Certainly, I mean, there's no dispute that the rise of social media and transparency has had an effect. And it's also, I do think there are some customers who want to Um, more overtly align their personal values or brand values. But those aren't, in my experience, those aren't the big drivers of this. The biggest driver of this is excessive parity and choice in the marketplace. We, In first world countries, we are over-serviced we have 19 ranch dressings on the store aisle we have 27 business vendors that can provide any service with no meaningful uh, differentiation between them we have too many entrepreneurs that have decided to start businesses that aren't really required or are meaningfully different uh, they're just marginally different and uh, and so we've we've created an environment where the buyer has no perceived way of making a discernible difference. How, do, how are they going to choose? And uh, if they can't decide what makes a business different, they will always go to price or convenience. So they'll only choose the cheapest or the easiest to access so unless you are a brand that wants to play in that space, and very few are because very few want to go toe-to-toe with Walmart or Costco or Amazon or Southwest Airlines, right? There's, a, there's always going to be one really great low-cost provider. Everybody else, the vast majority, then have to find some other way to compete besides being the cheapest or the easiest. And uh, that's why I think brand purpose and brand engagement has started to become important is people have started to say, well, what if? What if we stood for something different than just the products or services that we sold? What if we gave our customers something else besides what's inside the box? Some sense of belonging, some sense of community, some sense of education, some sense of entertainment. Uh, you know, There's lots of other choices, but we've kind of gotten ourselves into this mess because we just keep propagating more and more stuff despite the fact that consumers don't need more choice. They need more confidence in the
0: I love that it's in the grocery store analogy of all the ranch dressings and all that, even with supply chain challenges that we're currently facing. Okay, so there's 16 brands instead of 19. Okay, but it's still overwhelming uh, to a lot of people, especially when you talk to new immigrants, for example, that go into a US grocery store for the first time. They're just blown away, they're overwhelmed by. How can you have this many types of the same thing it's It's something that you know we've created obviously over the years, and you know nothing against those companies that have created it. They're obviously creating a margin and a product or a service, but like you said, they're not being completely different compared to you know everything else, and having something stand out. Uh, with your organization, I think is you know some of the great work that you've done with the companies that you've that you've worked with. So, I want to share you know with you know you can share clients if you want. Uh, if not, you know just share some of the the commonalities you find in those organizations that were able to stand out amongst all the others.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate that question because that is the I mean that is at the core of of. How- business 11 years ago. Um, we began a research study uh, initially for a book about what was the separation, what were the differences in beliefs and in behaviors between the world's most adored, what we call cult-like brands. Cult brands, I appreciate can be a bit controversial, but just you know, suspend your disbelief for this podcast. And trust me when I say they're wildly um, attractive and desirable. So we were looking at these cult brands defined by businesses that were achieving above average success financially, but also above average engagement and emotional buy-in. We like to say these brands got people to not only buy, but to buy in. Um, so you look at somebody like the Dallas Cowboys that was you know not that great on the field, frankly, for the past couple of years, but but un, you know, head and shoulders above every other NFL franchise. How did that happen? Look at somebody like Porsche. Look at somebody like Costco. Costco not even spending any money on traditional advertising. And yet there's these people that just loved their, their experience of going to Costco and the treasure hunt that, that ensued. Uh, Lululemon. So uh, we've found dozens. Harley-Davidson, you know, some of the obvious ones, Apple, Nike, Starbucks, and then some of the less obvious ones like Lush Cosmetics or... Um, even the Saskatchewan Rough Riders here in, in Canada. Um, and so we started to dissect them. We started to investigate their beliefs and their behaviors. And we found eight things, eight, this we call them the occult brand principles. And that's what we wrote about uh, in our book. And then what I really like about what we've done, Michael, is we didn't just stop um Every year, we continue to stress test it. Are those principles still true? Are there examples? You know, today sometimes you see this research, like Jim Collins is good to great, and people like to say, "Look at how the the, the benchmark companies he used 20 years ago are now." You know, GE is no longer a a Wall Street darling as an example. So every year. We would interview and investigate, and we'd find new brands like Reddit or uh, Call of Duty or Airbnb, and the, you know these brands are you know TikTok TikTok wasn't even around 5 years ago now they're the fastest brand to get to a billion users they're changing the media landscape not just the social media landscape but you know they're the first viable competitor to YouTube or television uh, that we've ever seen and we're curious how does that adoption happen uh, what what's going on inside their boardrooms what decisions are they making and and these eight principles continue to stay true uh, and uh, some of them have become extremely popular, like brand purpose. Simon Sinek has made a nice living teaching us about this idea of starting with your why. But that principle has been with inside you know, cult brands for well over a 100 years. We have evidence of that going back to John Deere in the 1800s, or um, even you know, we just honored the NFL at, at our big event. So every year, instead of writing a new book, we we just go to an event and we kind of have like the Oscars, if you will, but for businesses. And it's a chance to just remind people of the power of these principles and then hopefully encourage them to start to apply them to their own businesses.
0: And that's what's so important is I think a lot of smaller businesses or startups, you know, my audience is made up of a lot of people like that. Many times they think, okay, I can't do what John Deere did, or I can't do what Best Buy did or the NFL. And actually they can. You, know, you scale it accordingly, but understanding and following those eight things that you saw, you know, I'm guessing can be... Applicable to pretty much any organization as long as they, they follow the guidelines and, and, and the playbook using an NFL analogy of rolling these things out. Yeah, I get
1: really disappointed when I hear a business leader use the word can't. Uh, they need to replace it with won't uh, because they can do anything. You know, I remember a few years ago at the gathering, Tim Hortons spoke and um, you know, they put a picture up of their very first mom, pa donut shop. And it was no different than any other cruddy man and pond donut shop that every town has a few dozen of. And it was like, what was the difference? Was Tim Hortons somehow uh, have some superpower, some genetic, you know, defect that caused their DNA to create, you know, the most beloved brand in Canada? No, it was courage and creativity. And if you if you're not inspired by the origin stories of these massive brands then you just lack courage or creativity because every business started as an idea. Every business started in somebody's garage. And the only difference between the great brands and the mediocre brands is the ambition and the and the conviction of the leaders to not just settle for you know, mediocre. They wanted to be exceptional and they wouldn't stop until they did.
0: And that's the common thing that I see in a lot of successful businesses, whether they're large or they're, you know, small under, you know, a few million dollars of revenue is, you know, what, what does the owner, what does the group want out of it? You know, they want to just go and do something and, and create something and be good with that. Okay. That's fine. Don't anticipate that you're going to grow exponentially with that type of drive. Uh, but if you're one that says, no, I want to make a dent in the universe. There's a reason why I'm doing this because we all have choices. And I I love what you said a moment ago about eliminating can't uh, from the vocabulary and replacing it with won't. And that's really what it boils down to. And a lot of people will say, I can't do that. It's like, no, you won't do what it takes in order for you to do that. And it's a mindset thing. And sometimes our... Our programming, you know, the language that we use internally in between our ears, uh, can be our biggest hurdle to overcome, uh, especially when we're trying to grow our business uh, to the next level.
1: Yeah, and I and I really I get discouraged by these false constraints and paradigms that that people say because they think that they have to somehow sacrifice. Fice profit or immediate, you know, urgent success. You know, they 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 talk about their, the bills they have to pay or the mortgage they have to do. They don't understand that building a cult brand is a twofer. You get a super successful company and uh, an environment in which you're professionally or per, I'm sorry, personally fulfilled. And rewarded. You don't have to like go to your job and and you know despise it and slave away at it, so that you then can go home and scratch your itch for social good or philanthropy or you know some some form of giving back. Like why aren't we aligning those better? Why aren't we making our companies or our careers the place that we're becoming our best selves? And uh, that way you get that exponential effect or that synergistic effect of one plus one. Uh, equals three, and I think that too many people, and that's really what we're seeing. I mean, candidly, that is the, the the great resignation that everybody talks about is is oftentimes relabeled as the great awakening, or even the great discontent, where people are saying, you know, enough of this. If life is, if something so small that we can't even see it is going to kill millions of people in in a two year span then maybe we better get on with our lives and start living. Maybe we better start doing the things that we've always said we were going to do but never did. And, uh, and that's why people are saying, no more, I'm not going to work for this jerk. I'm not going to work for this company that doesn't align with my, my ideals. I'm not going to endure this commute or go into this office anymore. And I, I'm, I'm really inspired by it. I, I'm, you know There's a little bit of better late than never, but I'm sad that it takes a pandemic to get us to wake up and to start living our best lives.
0: I agree with you on that. And yeah, definitely great awakening, great reset. There's all kinds of ways to put it, but I I too uh, agree with what you say because life is short. Life can feel long, but life is short. And when everything that has transpired over these last couple of years, people, and I, I agree with you as well on the... Boy, this took long enough, but too bad it didn't need to cost you know, millions of lives to wake people up. But sometimes tragedy creates opportunity and for people to make decisions on what they want to do, you know, what's important to them. Uh, and I think organizations, the, the ones that are successful will recognize that and say, okay, well, let's come to a common ground area where everything can work out for everybody. And there's going to be organizations that are going to be a mixture of in-person, hybrid, fully remote, and some organizations you know, think, well, no, we need to be fully in-person, and their staff's going, why? We've been remote for two years, and everything's been getting done, and we found efficiencies, and our our work life is a bit of better harmonized than it used to be before? Why do we need to go back to what really wasn't working? And those organizations, I think, are going to have a difficult time, um, in the short term anyway, uh, to be able to not only create great products and services because their employees aren't going to be overly happy about the situation, to you know, who knows what will happen with some of them. We've seen it in history, and you, you know that. You mentioned General Electric a few moments ago. You know, there's I forget what the stats are, but in the 1960s, the Fortune 500, there's only like 50 or 60 of those companies left. You know, these are the top 500 companies in the world, and almost all of them are gone now. And so it's, you know, don't rest on your laurels. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, you know, I think that I wish the conversation was shifted. You, know, I think there's way too many calories being spent on the debate on where our employees physically doing their work and are we making them come back to an office or not and I wish that we had two very different conversations one conversation around how do we enable and encourage maximum flexibility for employees that are trying to maximize their lives and you know it, 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 because that may be in the office or not but it also might mean am I working at 10 p.m or 10 a.m it might mean do I want to work four days a week you know 12 hours a day or six days a week, six hours a day, right? For most of us, we're not, well, I shouldn't say most. There's a huge swath of the population that doesn't have any control over their schedule. They're in the service sector. They have to be at our restaurants or at our hotels or at our airports kind of a thing. But for white collar knowledge-based workers, um, we should stop talking about where are they getting the work done and more about how are we enabling maximum flexibility. And then similarly, it's the leadership. I mean, most people that are clamoring for a return to the way things were is a return to how they were familiar with leading others and and oftentimes micromanaging others. It's not all negative. Sometimes there's enhancements to culture and and camaraderie that is important uh, face-to-face, but uh, I'm discouraged that when pressed, and, and when they're honestly pressed, there's a huge insecurity amongst the C-suite about, well, how are they going to retain this command and control mentality that they've only ever known if their people are you know, running around uh, with not uh, with a, a lot of supervision? And that's where I think we have to shift the focus of maybe leadership isn't about command and control Maybe leadership is about inspiration and empathy and empowerment. And uh, that requires new types of uh, leadership skills that not everybody's very strong in. And that's why I think if you read in between the lines at a lot of these organizations, that's really what they're complaining about is I'm going to lose a sense of my superiority. I'm going to lose a sense of my status if if we're not back to the old uh, cubicle and corner office construct.
0: Yeah, I agree. And it's a shift from being a leader to being a coach. You know, a coach wants their player to be successful. Uh, Here's some plays. here's, Here's everything you need to do in order to be successful. Make sure they have everything that they need to be successful in the work that they're doing. And then let them do it. And I find that the organizations that allow for a lot of autonomy to Here's your job. Here's the tools you have. What do you need from us? Let me know what you need, and then get out of their way. Let them do it. and be there. you know cheer them on when they do great things. Um, correct them privately if they mess up, you know and and just let them do great work. And I agree with you. I think there was a lot of it is self-confidence, I think. Uh, And egos and a lot of other things with some of the leaders that have this feeling of, I need to be the boss. And, okay, great. Good for you. Um, That's not making anything any better for anybody else. By doing that, it certainly wasn't working for your employees before. They just had an out over the last couple of years, and now they're like, I don't want to go back in. So it's going to be an interesting dynamic to watch, and, and I love how you've um, you know highlighted the leadership side of things on this because, again, those strong leaders that uh, know how to lead uh, properly, that will create the scenarios and the environments for growth and health of an organization – has a positive ripple effect in everything they do and all the deliverables they give to their customers, you know, the brand awareness, you name it. Uh, it. It starts with strong leadership. And when you when you have that, then you, you're setting yourself up for success for sure.
1: Yeah. And I really, I'm so fascinated by the coach metaphor. Because um, if I tell somebody on the street, I think of a coach, the problem is, is there's a lot. You have you know, high school coaches that are sort of, they have to make the best of whatever they're dealt with because they're dealing with, you know, a, a, a huge swath of, of talent and they don't get to cut many people. You could have an individual coach, like a, uh, a tennis coach or a swimming coach. You could have a team coach. Uh, I tend to think about NCAA football, which is probably my favorite sports league, uh, which is. Then, then you start to look at well what makes them really successful is it their play calling is it their knowledge of the game is it their how they manage the media or deal with upper management the real just the, the real um, um, discernment between a good coach and a great coach at the college ranks and, and a little bit at the NFL or professional ranks is has to do more with recruitment and, and how much energy they put in getting the right people on the bus to begin with. Um, so, you know, it's easy to kind of say everything you said about, you know, give them the right tools and then get out of their way if they're the right kind of person. If they're not the right kind of person, that's going to lead to disaster. And then that's where we then say, well, let's revert back to systems that allow us to accommodate mediocre people or, you know, cater to the underperformer, which is what corporate environments have historically done versus the best leaders spend an irresponsible amount of time not running the business, but in attracting and retaining talent. And in sourcing the next people that are going to run that organization. Uh, and I don't think that people view, you know, they outsource that to HR, they outsource that to recruitment. Maybe the boss comes in on a final interview versus, like, what if a boss spent three nights a week having dinners with people that they may not even be hiring for in the, for the next six or 12 months, but they're in a perpetual state of sourcing talent because it's only after you find the right type of person. Can you then give them the tools and set them free and allow them to go and to be great? And I think we've just kind of phoned it in for too many years and treated too many people like uh, commodities as opposed to, you know, cherishing and, and identifying. You know, uh, Reed Hastings with Netflix, and it's kind of a weird example because Netflix is imploding this week. But this week aside, you know, there's no debate what Netflix has done. And he's written one of the best books on talent management and culture and it's a, it's a whole philosophy that I think would be the exact opposite of how 90% of organizations today are operating and thinking about talent and culture. And yet Netflix has gone on to become this unicorn and most businesses are, are, are floundering.
0: Yeah, the Netflix story, again, excluding this particular week, has been one of amazement from taking on blockbuster many many years ago and everybody laughed them off and blockbuster could have you know bought netflix you know there was an opportunity for them to do that and they went no nah, we're not going to do that and you know we we know what happened with them and it's it's a case of you know focusing on your people you know they're not an order of paper clips or post it notes or a desk they're living breathing human beings With emotions, feelings, dreams, desires, you name it. And when you focus on their well-being and checking in with them in a human, not, you know, standard scheduled template kind of thing, but in a realistic, you know, understanding where your people are and, and what they need and how things are going for them, especially during this pandemic you know that's this pandemic has been hard on everyone in a variety of different ways but continually checking in with people and seeing you know how are they you know what's what's going on you know is there anything that we can do to help anything that you're facing right now just doing something like that is critical for retention um, they're going to remember that you know they're going to think long and hard about leaving the organization if that's the type of environment that you have someone that is you know really generally caring about the the individual and, and what they're doing so I've loved this conversation Chris where can people find out more about you and this amazing work you do
1: um yeah thanks we so my agency is called cult our website is cultideas.com. Uh we have loads of free content daily thought leadership scorecards a book the event uh, lots of ways that uh, we really feel that our job is to evangelize a new and better way to think about leadership and about brand building uh, so uh, they could certainly go there and uh, they can follow me personally just to reach out on LinkedIn I'm, I'm pretty active on that a community trying to uh, spread
0: the good word. Awesome. And I'll definitely have that in the show notes. So Chris, again, thank you so much for this conversation. I've really enjoyed it and and continued success in everything you do.
1: Yeah. Thanks, buddy. I really appreciate meeting you.
0: Thanks for listening to The The Breakfast Breakfast Leadership Show, Show, part of The Breakfast Leadership Network. Visit breakfastleadership.com for tips on empowering your
1: business and your life.